I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas about the celebrated Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. I'm not preaching the easy doctrine that the only problems we have in Canada are economic, that we don't also have misunderstandings and difficulties between different people in Canada, between different language groups. But it's certainly true, in my mind, that one of the major sources of the deep resentments has been economic imbalance. The year was 1968. Charles Taylor was addressing a political meeting in Quebec, and CBC Television was there to record him for a documentary called The Young Contenders. Taylor was then a national vice president of the New Democratic Party, its Quebec president, and a federal candidate in Montreal's Dollar riding to say nothing of his day jobs as professor of philosophy at the Université de Montréal and of political science at McGill. Today, Charles Taylor is known around the world for his philosophy and for big books like Sources of the Self and A Secular Age, which attempt nothing less than an anatomy of the entire modern era. But during the 1960s, he put his heart and soul into an ultimately unsuccessful effort to make the NDP a truly national social democratic party by winning seats in Quebec. In this episode of Ideas, we'll revisit those years and hear Charles Taylor's thoughts on the question of Quebec in Canada and his own identity as a Quebecer. This is my society where I was brought up, and that's how I feel Canadian. I feel Canadian because I'm a Quebecer, and I, I believe passionately in Quebec and Canada because I believe in this kind of society that can bridge this diversity. But I'm a Canadian through being a Quebecer. That's my way of being. Our program is the third of five about the thought of Charles Taylor. It's presented by Ideas producer David Cayley. From the Coliseum at Lansdowne Park in Ottawa, the founding convention of the new Democratic Party. I thank you tonight for your great vote of confidence and for your enthusiasm and for the knowledge which I have within myself that you and I and all the people across Canada who believe in the things for which we stand will work together until final victory is achieved. Thank you. Tommy Douglas, speaking in 1961, after having been chosen the first leader of the new Democratic Party. Among the applauding delegates was Charles Taylor, then 30 years old and fresh from Oxford, where he had just completed his doctorate in philosophy. The new party came into existence with high hopes. One of them was to gain an electoral foothold in Quebec, something its predecessor, the CCF, had never been able to do. Charles Taylor seemed ideally placed to take up this challenge. Descended from an old French family on his mother's side, he had been brought up in a predominantly French and Catholic milieu and was as much Québécois as he was English. During his years in England, he had been an active member of the Labour Party and one of the founding editors of the New Left Review. So, while also teaching at both McGill and the University of Montreal, he threw himself into building up the new party in Quebec. The challenge, as he told an interviewer from CBC Television in 1967, was to create a truly national left-wing party. How is one ever going to have an alliance across the country between French and English, between Ontario and the West, between farmer and labour, which doesn't rely on this idea of elites elite brokerage, elite negotiation, in which the people concerned have no very real part. And I admit this is the really difficult thing. This thing right. that has never been done, that every left party in Canada in the past has broken. The wave has broken on this particular rock. It broke on the borders of Quebec, or else the farmer movement didn't manage to break in in the labor areas. The only thing that gives me hope today that we can do more than this is that there's a kind of growth in the Canadian electorate whereby Deference politics is no longer accepted in the same way. Charles Taylor stood four times for Parliament during the 1960s. It was a period of minority governments, formed first by the Conservatives under John Diefenbaker and then the Liberals under Lester Pearson 
and so also a period of frequent elections in 62, 63, 65, and again in 68. Taylor was an active campaigner throughout Quebec, as well as in his own writing, and one of the themes he emphasized was the need for Canada to take control of its own economy. Here he is at a nomination meeting in the Montreal writing of Dollard in 1967. Let the economy into which this foreign capital is invited be designed in Canada for Canadians. Now, when you make that demand, there's only one way to do it. You've got to do it by public enterprise. They're going to tell us, don't kill the goose that lays the golden eggs. Don't chase away foreign capital. Let's all be good boys and not complain. But the answer is not that we want to chase away foreign capital. The answer is simply that we want to design the conditions and design the economy into which we want to invite that foreign capital. This is the point we've got to make. We've got to make it over and over again. And this is the point in which I think we will win and we will come to power. Because this is what Canadians want and we are the only party that's offering this. Thank you. In the elections of 1962 and 63, Charles Taylor ran in the central Montreal riding of Mount Royal and lost to Liberal Alan McNaughton. Then, in 1965, events took a strange turn. Elements in the Liberal Party were courting Pierre Trudeau, Gérard Pelletier, and Jean Marchand, soon nicknamed the Three Wise Men by the wits of the time. Marchand, the fiery and charismatic leader of the Confederation of Quebec Trade Unions, was the real prize, but he wouldn't consider going to Ottawa without his friends Trudeau and Pelletier. There was a catch, however. Both men had been savagely critical of the Liberal Party in 1963. At the time, the Conservative government of John Diefenbaker was refusing to accede to an American demand that nuclear warheads be installed on the Beaumark missiles that were then stationed in Canada. The Liberal leader, Lester Pearson seized the opportunity, reversed his previous opposition to atomic weapons in Canada, and after defeating Diefenbaker in the subsequent election, accepted the nuclear arms. Trudeau bitterly denounced Pearson as the defrocked prince of peace. So when Marchand, Pelletier, and Trudeau, after much negotiation, agreed to become liberal candidates in 1965, the party brass in Quebec were not pleased. At the time, Trudeau and Charles Taylor were friends. They taught together at the University of Montreal and were both editors of the magazine Cité Libre. So one way for the liberal apparatchiks to punish Trudeau was to run him against Taylor in Mount Royal. That was very much a dirty trick that the liberal machine played on him because he'd supported me in the previous election in that seat. So it was very embarrassing for him. And they did it deliberately because they were the actual machine politicians were extremely angry. And both he and Petier had talked about the Quebec caucus and the fact that they'd all just followed Pearson as the font poubelle, the bottom of the garbage can, as a thing without principles on. So these people who made up the Quebec machine were not terribly happy about this. But Pearson forced them. He forced them because he saw they needed new, untainted leadership in Quebec. All the scandals around the earlier people were just making life impossible. So he put his foot down, and as we're proving the principle that the leader can force people to do whatever he wants, said, we are taking these people. So they, okay, we're taking them, but we're not going to make life easy for them. This is the irony, you see, that this Trudeau that they would have loved to have kicked out if they could, later was their ticket to success. Well, what happened in that 65 election when you were opponents? It was very tense. He hated it. I, I felt a little bit angry, but I, I understood why they were doing this. And the trouble was that they, we had, uh, you know, they were kind of traditions in that constituency of, uh, you call them assemblée contradictoire in French, where the candidates have got to come together and debate, right? He obviously felt acutely uncomfortable. And I suppose I didn't make life easier by, you know. <laughs> and 
he hated it. And I, I, it's not just what I felt at the time, but Pensier in his memoir says that, you know, he did feel really uncomfortable and bad about this. But presumably you couldn't, but, uh, you were debating, you must have had to say, yeah, what I, is this man doing in the Liberal Party? <laughs> yeah, I know. I tried to go a little bit you know, easy on that aspect of it, but what else could you do? This is uh, one of these you know, natural tragedies. But our friendship got recovered from that. Trudeau, it hardly needs saying, won the 1965 election in Mount Royal. The NDP vote increased, as it had in 1963, but it was still only half the Liberals' total. It was as close as Charles Taylor ever got. Vous le savez, il n'y a pas de doute dans mon esprit. C'est maintenant ou jamais qu'il faut agir. Et c'est ainsi que nous serons maîtres chez nous. It is now or never that we must become maîtres chez nous, masters in our own house. Quebec Premier Jean Lesage, speaking during the 1962 provincial election campaign, when his Liberals made the nationalization of hydropower and the creation of Hydro-Quebec the central plank in their platform. The conservative Quebec in which Charles Taylor had grown up was quickly passing away as urbanization economic development and political change eroded the once formidable power of the Roman Catholic clergy. Abuse of this power, Taylor says, had created a lot of resentment, and once the church was no longer seen as the cornerstone of Quebec's very survival, this pent-up feeling was free to express itself. Once that went, then the pressure to get rid of it was just very, very powerful. All the anger that had built up against the incredible abuse of power that it was involved in that clerical control, finally, you know, there's nothing holding it back anymore. So people left in droves. But it went, it went at a speed. You can't imagine. I mean, I remember the 62 election when the Liberals went back after only being elected in 1960. And they were saying things like, we'll never have an education ministry because education was still run by the church. And oh, no, this is horrifying thought. No, don't blame us. Don't accuse us of wanting an education ministry. And of course, a couple of years later, we had one. And it just moved with incredible speed. What well, The unthinkable of year X was the you know, consensus of X plus one. The upheaval that began with the quiet revolution eventually played against Charles Taylor's political hopes. His NDP was promoting a pan-Canadian agenda of economic planning and social justice. But people who shared this orientation in Quebec tended to migrate to the nationalist movement, which eventually gave birth to the Parti Québécois with René Lévesque as leader in 1968. That whole constituency, the constituency of the left, sort of left-leaning liberals, people with uh, some kind of uh, progressive agenda, and the unions, in the end, plumped for the Parti Québécois. They plumped for independentism. Independentism had a right and a left wing, but the right wing movement was infinitesimal, very small. So when the Parti Québécois was formed, it was overwhelmingly a social democratic-leaning party, and it's remained so to this day. And once they'd made that clump, which they did really in 68, I mean, they went that way and they couldn't afford a success on the federal level of a party that close to their philosophy, right? Because that would mean that Quebecers would begin to put some hopes in these policy changes in the federal level. And that must be avoided at all costs. Now, the present situation was something like the Bloc Québécois was something that Lévesque wanted to avoid. He wanted to avoid the federal level altogether. So he didn't accept the idea, as a lot of people were already proposing, that they should, independents should run on the federal level. He, his idea was stay away totally from the federal level. We won't support anybody on the federal level. We will attack the whole federal level, not any particular party. 
And so there was an interdict on serious support for us. And that whole policy dimension was taken up by independentism and went off in that direction. And it's remained that way in a certain sense ever since with this twist that now there is a federal, as it were, place to put it, named it the Bloc Québécois. And it's not an accident the Bloc Québécois is on the left of the Canadian spectrum, that we almost had this uh, coalition government a, a couple of years ago, right, in which the liberals... Well, you must NDP, think, looking at it, that that could have been the NDP representation yeah, from Quebec. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it, In it another is. world, that would be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> see. Quite. <laughs> The other thing that hammered the NDP in 1968, the year their steadily growing vote might have put them over the top, was Trudeau-mania. This was a phenomenon of which there had been no hint in 1965, when Charles Taylor and Pierre Trudeau were embarrassed opponents in Mount Royal. Pierre Trudeau was then just the slightly distasteful price the Liberals had to pay to attract Jean Marchand. But everything changed after Lester Pearson announced his retirement from politics at the end of 1967. Trudeau-mania, which didn't exist at all, started in English Canada only in 68 during the leadership campaign to replace Pearson. It started and got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then Quebecers, like any small people, we just love people like Céline Dion or Jacques Villeneuve who are famous outside, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) So, it was a radical (laughs) reversal, except, of course, the real nationalists who hated him violently, right? But for the mass of the people, he was great success. I mean, he dines with the queen and makes an impact on the universe. (laughs) This is Isaiah, Saint-Indian, Dion, Jacques Villeneuve. We can't resist them. So... The irony is that the, the one that they really tried to kick out was their, their ticket to success for a couple of decades after that. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 137. Today's program is the third of five about the thought of Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. It's presented by David Cayley. In 1968, when the NDP in Quebec was crushed between the twin rocks of independentism and Trudeau-mania, was a watershed. Charles Taylor continued to be involved in the party and remained for a time a national vice president, but the big hopes he had once entertained in Quebec were, for the foreseeable future, at an end. One of the things that had undone them was what Taylor would later call the politics of recognition. That was the name he gave one of his most famous and influential essays, published in the early 1990s. I saw a very interesting change going on, and I think it's one of the first to name it, but then it got totally general because it obviously was going on and people, everyone was noticing it, was that a great many of the really big issues that were worrying people were not issues about income distribution or who's got more power or we're not being given a chance to get these jobs or that job and so on. These remain important issues. But we're in this dimension of recognition. Do people really take us seriously? And I've seen this in Quebec independentism. It's very interesting. It starts off, we've been getting a bad deal, we haven't been getting the jobs, our language is being suppressed, there's a series, and still, for a long time, the Pelt Québécois operated on the, they were trying to cook the books to show that federalism was a bad deal for Quebec because we were getting less from Ottawa than we were giving to Ottawa. I mean, it had to be proved in those terms. And of course, it never quite could, the figures (laughs) could never quite work out in that way. Until people began to say, well, you know, they don't really respect us. I mean, you know, they, they really don't, don't accept that we are a people 
and they don't recognize us as a people. And how can you live in a society like that where they don't recognize you, right? And that's the major discourse today. And this is something very hard to put your finger on. You know, you want to speak Hegelian language, this zeitgeist, the spirit of the times, because it's everywhere. These kind of appeals to, you know, they're not recognizing it. They don't respect us. They don't really see that we, we have worth or why we have worth or what our lives are about. Everywhere, that's becoming a major way of formulating a sense of grievance. Charles Taylor has been very much affected by the politics of recognition. In 1960s Quebec, this new style of politics frustrated his hopes, as Quebec independentism drew off the support he had hoped to channel into a federal social democratic party. At other times, the sensitive way in which he has registered and described this phenomenon has made him appear to be its advocate. I see him as someone who has shown that recognition is a crucial dimension of identity and a political demand that has to be taken seriously, but who has also insisted that recognition is a two-way street. An example is his reaction to Bill 101, the charter of the French language, introduced by the first Parti Québécois government in the year after their election in 1976. Taylor strongly supported the entrenchment of French as Quebec's common language, but he objected just as strenuously to restrictions placed on the English minority, like the prohibition of English signs or the requirement that Anglophones coming to Quebec from other provinces school their children in French. He expressed his disagreement in a conversation with Camille Lorrain, the PQ minister responsible for the bill, on a CBC television show called Summer Close-Up, co-hosted by Mary Lou Finley, whom you will also hear. What really dismays me in this bill is that we have this very important act to promote the French language and give it its full place, and you're defining the promotion of the French language in such a way that it involves compression of certain minority freedoms of expression. And I think that's a great tragedy, because I don't think that is necessary. But I Mr. think that the Taylor, real strength the English of French minority has taken, on account of exceptional circumstances, a place that is disproportionate. Forget the English minority for a minute in the place it's taken. I'm talking about the French majority. Mm -hmm. It's got to define itself. It's partly defining itself through this act. And I think you're aware of that, and you're aware of being part of the process. The definition of our people as a people that can only survive by silencing all English in Montreal inside. That's a definition that I deeply refuse, and I think that a great many people in this province do, because it's going to harm us in the end. It's going to harm us more than Mr. it's going to harm Taylor, them. Do you mm. feel like a minority now? No. Moi, je suis Québécois, and my family is both French and English, and I always live here, and I belong to this province. My family has been here for three centuries, and what kind of life we're going to build here is something that means a lot to me as it does to, to mm. Camille Laurent. But I, there's a very profound difference that we have here that I think we have to bring out, that if you define the promotion of this people in terms of the compression of minorities, they say they judge the life of the people by how it treats minorities. You know, it's because... It uh, is a, mm -hmm. a, I mean, it's a great tragedy. You've got a wonderful chance now with a new government, and I think you're ruining it. I re if, if I can speak to you entre quatre yeux like that straight, mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. you're ruining it. And well, I deeply deplore it. Charles Taylor opposed what he called the compression of the English minority by the charter of the French language, but not, as he says here, because he identified himself with this minority. Moi, je suis Québécois, he tells Mary Lou Findlay. And when Canada's constitution was on the table in the late 1980s, he strongly supported the recognition of Quebec as a distinct society in the Meech Lake Accord. Meech Lake was an agreement created by Prime Minister Brian Mulroney and Quebec Premier Robert Bourassa in 1987. Quebec had never endorsed the Constitution Act of 1982, and Meech Lake was intended to end this isolation. The agreement met the key demands that had been put forward by Bourassa, including recognition of his province as a distinct society. It died in 1990 when the provincial legislatures of Manitoba and Newfoundland failed to ratify it. The passions it evoked precisely illustrate what Charles Taylor was talking about a moment ago, the crucial role of recognition in contemporary politics. 
the Meech-Lake uh, Accord, the Meech-Lake Potential uh, Amendment to the Constitution, the key part of it was involving recognizing Quebec as a distinct society. It's a wonderful expression, distinct society. So for the people concerned with recognition, this was absolutely key because this is a way of saying, yeah, we don't no longer look at you as just a lot of individual Canadians that happen to speak this strange language. And <laughs> maybe we should make sure that you don't earn less, uh, you know. But but we recognize that you have a collective existence as this people with this particular identity, and that you're really concerned with that, and that's what you think your public life is all about. And Quebec is the locus where that that community exists. So all that, which also could be coded in Quebec as a nation was coded in as a distinct society. And it's very interesting what happened. It was proposed. The first reaction of the Parti Québécois was, this is nonsense, this is nuts. They talked about the Meech Lake monster <laughs> by analogy with the Loch Ness monster. And then they fell strangely silent because the feedback they were getting is, hey, don't knock this. You know, this is good. So then they played to get it defeated. And Palizzo said, oh, if you give us this, we'll ask for 20 more things. <laughs> they were desperate to defeat it, right? So we, the Federalists, were desperate to, you know, not to have it defeated, to win it. So we went out in the rest of the country and we argued, etc. Now, anyway, it was defeated. And what we feared happened. There was a wave. There was an incredible wave. If we'd had a referendum, then Canada would no longer exist. I'm convinced of that. It took five years to calm things down, and we won by 50,000 votes. <laughs> you know, If we'd had a referendum, we would have gone. And all the independents saw that, and they were so mad at Bourassa. And they all said, you know, this is the moment, let's say, we're going to stand up, you're gonna, not going to take this and lying down. And Bourassa played it and played it and played it and skated the puck, <laughs> stick handling the whole thing. And of course, he lasted until 94 when he finally, you know, had the election. Well, actually, he was quite ill then, so he handed over to, you know, Daniel Johnson, who lost the election. And the uh, Québécois came in power and they took a year to mobilize the referendum and they lost. But they lost by a hair. See, this, nobody understood out there the emotions around this in Quebec. And it was no use trying to explain to people. They just didn't see it. You know, people said, I was saying to people, you know, if six months before, if this goes down, we've lost the country. Oh, you're exaggerating. You know. But you, anybody who had a sense of what was going on in Quebec, there was a real mass emotion around this because it was dangled, as it were, and then... Taken away. The failure of Meech Lake created a climate, in Charles Taylor's view, in which Quebec's secession would have been a certainty had Robert Bourassa's government not had a fresh mandate and therefore time to stick handle the issue, as Taylor says. And for him, one of the strangest ironies of this situation was that the Meech Lake Agreement, in a sense, had done nothing more than formally acknowledge what was already the case. What looks so ridiculous to, <laughs> to me, anyway, observer, is that we are treated in many ways like a distinct society. You know, we have special immigration agreement, we have, right, there's all sorts of ways in which the special status exists, but you can't, it's like a Victorian uh, discussion of sex. I mean, you can't mention it if you mention it. The roof falls in. <laughs> And then if you and then if you if somebody proposes you mention it and you don't mention it, the other roof falls in. <laughs> so the Quebec roof falls in. So it's it is a real it's a madhouse. The Meech Lake Agreement, by the time it finally went down to defeat, had many opponents. But one of the most influential was certainly Pierre Trudeau. The former Prime Minister campaigned aggressively against the accord. He trashed his successor, Brian Mulrooney calling him a weakling and someone willing to sell Canada's soul for political advantage. He argued that the agreement would, in his words, render the Canadian state totally impotent. Charles Taylor regarded Pierre Trudeau as a friend, 
As I mentioned earlier, they had been colleagues in the early 1960s at the University of Montreal and co-editors of the magazine Cité Libre. They had their bicultural identity in common. Trudeau French on his father's side, English on his mother's, Taylor the other way round. Trudeau had supported Taylor's run for Parliament in 1963. And even when the Liberal machine tried to punish Trudeau by running him against Taylor in 1965, the two remained on cordial terms. But when it came to the question of Canada, their views were always diametrically opposed. I think that Trudeau had the totally wrong model of the country and how the country can survive as a single unit. Trudeau didn't seem to have any place for these various slogans, deux nations, uh, you know, two nations, statut particulier, a particular a special status, and so on, because he really saw the country as a unity made up of individuals, and there was no place for recognition of a partial grouping of these individuals as their own important political entity. Whereas my idea of a modern country, a modern political society, is that it very often groups diverse, puts together, brings together diverse groups, and it very often has to make political arrangements to allow those diverse groups to have some kind of political expression. So that the idea of a multinational society is to me much more in keeping with the modern world than the idea of a nation-state. So, in my view, Trudeau and Parizeau agreed on something very, very fundamental, that you have to have that kind of unity to have a viable political entity. Only, <laughs> Trudeau said, that unity is Canada and therefore we can't recognize Quebec. And Parizeau said, well, you know, we've got to recognize Quebec, so we have to be independent. I think that what's really creative in the modern world important because we can't have a world in which every nation, however tiny, has its own independent state. We'd have, you know, 3,000 members of the United Nations and, and they'd all be eaten up by the few big countries that stayed unified, that we have to have ways, arrangements, whereby a plurality of groups, even of what you might call nations, can coexist. And these often involve not entirely logical, I mean, not entirely symmetrical arrangements. In our discussions, I remember he would often say to me, as a kind of ultimate killing argument, c'est pas logique. That's not logical. <laughs> and I would say, exactly, that's why. <laughs> that's why there's a chance of actually working. So there's a kind of difference of temperament here. But I would say something that, there was an emotional thing behind it. You see, I think that well, we now know that he was a member of, when he was a you know, teenager, or just shortly after, during the war, of one of these very nationalist associations. And he was certainly carried along in the demonstrations against conscription and so on. And then after the war, he traveled, he went to Harvard, he went to London. And I think he had a terrible, understandable but terrible reaction against Quebecois nationalism, because you go to 1946, Evan, you go to London or Harvard, and what's been happening in the last 10 years, the titanic struggle between Nazi barbarism and, and democracy. I mean, that's how everyone saw it. Here, you know, it was for a lot of people, how can we keep out of the war and not have conscription, right? Not, <laughs> see, terribly parochial outlook in a, a certain way. And the, the broader issue just didn't have the same resonance in this society, I mean, some resonance. And I think that Pierre must have felt ashamed of being Quebecois in a certain sense. And a little bit angry that he had been sort of sucked into this. <laughs> yeah. So I think it made an animus about nationalism that he never really got over. But I think that the model was was wrong. Now, if you turn it away from the issue of, you know, why I disagree with him and ask why this, why federalism excites me, it's because I think this is the challenge 
of the late 20th and 21st century and beyond. How can we live together without tearing up any political entity because you know it has a constituent nation? And we have to find ways of living beyond a narrow kind of <clears throat> nationalism and a focus on exclusively on nationalism. And this we can only do, and we, we've got to find a way of also really glorifying in being having a sense of real achievement in building these structures where different kinds of people can really work together and respect each other, right? So that's why I consider independentism in some ways dangerously destructive. I mean, I have respect for independence. I don't you know, some of my best friends. Are, you know, I mean, <laughs> but that's true. <laughs> that's true. It is true. <laughs> yeah. And um, some of my relations are independent. I mean, you know, so we, we have to live together. And I do, I sense the gut feeling. And I sense the anger at being denied this recognition for so many years by the official structures of the society in which they live, and I, the sense that well, at last we're going to be, we're going to be able to be ourselves and breathe and so on. I I see all that, but I don't think we should go there because I think we can build structures in which we can achieve this recognition in a less in a less destructive or tearing up the you know the existing structures way. Also, I think that Canada can play a role in the world, which is perhaps benign, though under the present government, I, you know, <clears throat> we don't seem to be doing that. But can, if Canada can play such a role, it is partly because it's done this business of knitting together different people within itself. It plays a role by its example, which people don't necessarily appreciate here. And it would depress I mean, immense numbers of people around the world who are trying to do this kind of thing if we, who have everything on our side, you know, not faced by war, or famine, or, or murderous hatreds. How many people have we killed uh, because of this difference in the last couple of centuries? I mean, you know, Louis Uriel, a few others, but very few compared to most situations in the world where people are asked to live together. It would be immensely depressing for so many people in the world if we were to fail in this. The Quebec government is striking a commission to study reasonable accommodation for cultural minorities. Premier Jean Charest says the debate has grown intense and has taken a bad turn. The commission comes after a controversy over a bylaw passed by one community in Quebec that bans the stoning of women. The commission will last a year and will be chaired by Gérard Bouchard and Charles Taylor. In early 2007, the mayor and council of Ehrouville published a charter which set out the terms on which immigrants would be welcome in this small, rural Quebec town. We consider, they announced, among many other provisions, that killing women in public beatings or burning them alive are not part of our standards of life. At this time, Ehrouville had one visible immigrant family. The charter attracted worldwide media attention and inflamed an already smoldering crisis in the province of Quebec. In the 1990s, after the collapse of the Meech Lake Accord, the big issue was Canada's failure to recognize Quebec. A decade later, the politics of recognition shoe was on the other foot, and Quebec was worrying about how it would accommodate its own minorities. Premier Jean Charest summoned Charles Taylor and Gérard Bouchard, a historian and sociologist of Quebec society, to calm things down. When they took up this mandate, Taylor says, stories of the threat to Quebec's culture and heritage were running like wildfire through Quebec's more populist media. What was a case where supposedly some Muslims had gone to a you call it in English sugar shack? Sugar shack, yeah. yeah. sugar shack. And, you know, this very big thing in Quebec, and people go there, and they have a wonderful feast, and they have, uh, but traditionally, they have pea soup with uh, chunks of ham in it and so on. And they, now, what actually happened is that a group of Muslims said, well, in our small room, could you give us the, <laughs> the pea soup without the ham? 
which was perfectly agreed was no problem. What it came out was that they said no ham in any pea soup at all, and they right. were depriving the Quebecois there of the <laughs> of the right to eat pea soup with ham in it. I mean, you could see that there was a certain distortion in the in the media, but the underlying emotions were very very widely held. Yeah. If you want to come here. When in Rome, do the Romans, how many times have I heard that? If you want to come here, you've got to be like a Quebecois. And somehow, being like a Quebecois is not wearing a hijab. Many of the stories circulating in the Quebec media at this time turned out to be just as fanciful as the Muslim plot against pea soup. But the panic, as Charles Taylor says, was perfectly real. There was a widespread sense that immigrants were making a lot of unreasonable demands and that Quebec's institutions were complacently accommodating them. Charles Taylor and Gérard Bouchard saw their appointment as a chance to put forward their vision of a pluralist Quebec, but also as a chance to let people really have their say. To this end, Bouchard suggested they hold open hearings. Normally, these consultations involve the Chamber of Commerce and such and such a group coming with a brief and boring everybody to death and so on. But he proposed something which I certainly immediately agree with. These freewheeling open mic meetings. We just go to a given place and say, at such and such an hour, come and give your opinion. And people flooded there. And it aroused such interest that they were televised. So more people came to the next meeting, as it were. And there came to be a kind of public debate over the whole of Quebec. People would refer back from meeting here to what was said by somebody in a meeting elsewhere last week and so on. It really was a debate of the whole society. And it not only let out a huge head of steam, it not only answered the sense that all people had, the politicians don't listen to us, they're making decisions on this without consulting us, but also, as well as the protesters, there were people who were responding to them. They were, for instance, there were some very harsh things said about Muslims. I must say, my admiration for the Muslim spokespeople was just without bounds because if I'd heard some of the things said about me that they heard said about them, I'd been shaking my fist and, you know, and really blown my top. And they controlled themselves beautifully. They spoke with moderation and sense, and that made an, a very powerful impression. I think what happened there was the head of steam, the head of panic, the extreme worry was really laid to rest by the commission. However, when we look at what opinion polls now say, it didn't alter the views very much. There still are a lot of people who are worried or somewhat hostile about things like Muslim girls wearing the hijab and you know, the headscarf in schools and so on, which, as far as our idea of secularism or laicity is concerned, is something that should be perfectly legitimate. I mean, our position was, in a nutshell on that, Institutions, public institutions, neutral, yes. Individuals who operate in them, no. They're all individuals and they aren't neutral and they have a religion and they have a view and if it requires them to wear this or that and so on, unless you have very, very strong reasons to rule that out, they ought to have the right to do this. In other words, maximum individual freedom of taking one option or another, anti-religious, pro-religious, this religion, that religion, maximum individual freedom combined with total, as much as possible, institutional neutrality. Whereas the conceptions of laicite that got a little bit accredited in the discussions in France and some of them spill over a little bit are much harder and have really much less good justifications. So that the fact that a a girl is obviously a Muslim because she's wearing a scarf, or a boy is obviously Jewish because he's wearing a kippah, is thought to be a threat to the neutrality of the institution. Now, we said no. There are going to be Muslim teachers and Catholic teachers and atheist teachers and and the same distribution among students. Why not let this be visible? 
that's what we want in a society where there are these differences that we not try to hide them. So this, I mean, this can't have been entirely convenient for you to be summoned at short notice no. to drop your work and come and <laughs> do this. Did, it wasn't did, at did all. You end, but you ended up glad to have I done it. I ended up very glad to have done it. But I mean, first of all, the going around the province and hearing all these things gave me insight into what people are feeling and so on, which I never would have got years of reading or seeing polls and so on. When you hear people saying over and over again what they really powerfully emotionally feel, you get a sense of the emotion that you would never get, you know, just from some third-party report. So that was very important education. And then I'm happy that, you know, we managed to put together a statement of what we think, how we think we should deal with this. And it's going to be there, and it you know, might, won't be acted on right away, and it may never be acted on. I hope not. that won't be the case. But it's there as a kind of articulation of this particular philosophy. And I'm, you know, it's great to be able to have done that. Yeah, I mean, you know, most intellectuals would just you know, respond to this very positively because here you get a chance not just to write a book that will be read by two or three colleagues, but to write something that could help orient a whole discussion in the whole society. Does this feeling that that your commission was created to address, uh, is this also part of a, a rupture or a rift in the independence movement, in your opinion? Well, it could be a rift in the independence movement because my colleague, Roger Bouchard, was an independentist and his brother was the leader of the Parti Québécois, right? So there are certainly people in the independence movement that think, as he did and I do, about these issues. But there are other people that either think or would like to surf on the other emotion, the emotion of fear. And our, our culture is threatened and we have to somehow protect it, right? And I'm afraid the Parti Québécois has made the decision under the new leader, Bodine Marois, to take that line, which really is a kind of reversal of the way the Parti Québécois was going under Lucien Bouchard, right? Lucien Bouchard assumed the leadership in the aftermath of Parizeau's terrible gaffe, if you like, at the end of the 95 referendum where he blamed the uh, you know, money and the ethnic vote was the reason why the yes was defeated, supposedly. And that went, again, that went around the world like Eauville and reflected very badly on us. And, you know, Le Pen, the leader of the French Front National, congratulated him on recognizing the danger of having all these immigrants and so on. And so we were deeply humiliated. And the Parti Québécois under Bouchard went in this other direction of saying, let's have an open definition of what it is to be Québécois and so on. I don't think that ever really sat totally well with the with all the membership. And certainly the way the Parti Québécois decided to react to the report in the aftermath has been to go to the other the other side. Now, what's interesting is that the independentist movement as a whole is not unanimous on this. The Bloc Québécois the Bloc Québécois gave to our commission one of the best memoirs, one of the best briefs we've had. We even incorporated some of their wording. They have really this very open attitude to what is what a Québécois is. A Québécois is whoever comes here and becomes part of our society and identifies with our society. And actually, the caucus of the Bloc in Ottawa is a really quite a remarkable exercise in multiculturalism <laughs> because there are people from all kinds of backgrounds there. And so there is this split in the independence movement, which is kept below the surface, because after all, there's a senior party and a junior party in that movement, right? The, and so it doesn't come to the surface. But the last word hasn't been said on, on as it were, which direction the independence movement will actually go. But for the moment, they're taking what I think is a disastrous course. During the Taylor-Bouchard Commission hearings in 2007 and 2008, Charles Taylor spent a lot of time listening to the anxieties that the religious practices of immigrants were stirring up among the native-born. And much that he heard about perceived threats to the province's secular ethos pointed to unresolved feelings about the province's own religious past 
and about the domination the Roman Catholic Church had exercised right up to the time of the Quiet Revolution in the early 1960s. When we went around, went around the province, and we heard people talking, the Quiet Revolution generation, a lot of them still had tremendous anger and resentment. They would come out with these stories, you know, they forced my aunt or my grandmother to have more children than she ever wanted, etc., etc., etc. That anger is still there. The ambivalences that are there are tremendously interesting because alongside this anger and resentment is a great sense that that whole past is crucial to our identity. We couldn't really totally negate that past and still be who we are, right? And maybe even we've gone too far, kind of doubts about whether we've gone too far in bashing it, right? So the compromise is, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately for the future of Quebec, that we hang on to all that under the title legacy or patrimony, right? <laughs> or, and we reject living religion in the form of these Muslim girls coming in. <laughs> We're very naïque there, but when it comes to the crucifix over the speaker's chair in the National Assembly, obviously, that's, that's legacy, that's not religion. So we get this impossible policy for a multicultural society, of course. I mean, you know, your religion snakes are... <laughs> right. <laughs> no, no. Anyway... But you can see those powerful emotions. I'm, you know, very happy I had that whole experience yeah. of the commission because yeah. when you hear it again and again and again, you get not only the fact, but the emotions behind it begin to get, come through to you. The Taylor-Bouchard Commission, with its open hearings, allowed Charles Taylor to put into practice an idea that runs like a bright thread through his political writings. That identity is always constituted in dialogue with others. So, while defending Quebec's national identity, he has at the same time insisted that this identity cannot be taken as something closed or finished, but must be continuously created through an open political process. In his very first book-length political essay, 1970's The Pattern of Politics, he called for a dialogue society. And this has remained his hope, that through political dialogue, the struggle for recognition can become a scene of reconciliation. Tomorrow at this time, I'll continue my exploration of Charles Taylor's thought with a program about his book, Sources of the Self, the epic tale of how we became modern. On Ideas, you've listened to the third program in our five-hour series, The Malaise of Modernity, Charles Taylor in Conversation. The series continues tomorrow at this time. Each show will be available as a podcast, after its broadcast, at cbc.ca slash podcasting. Or it can be streamed from our website at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there and find out about upcoming programs. Today's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley, with the help of Dave Field and Bernie Lucht. Archival research, Ken Pewley. Our webmaster is Liz Nage. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. The hourly news is next. <laughs>